never would have done that. If I would have been there, I would have been so different than these Pharisees and Sadducees. Then you don't understand the story up until this point. So let me just review this quickly. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people, they're not like the worst of humanity, and all of us are so much better than them. They represent the best of us. They represent the best humanity can do on its own, and they blew it. They blew it. All you have to do to relate to the Pharisees and Sadducees is think about how often you put yourself before God. Think about how often you've made excuses to live in sin. Let's just take a popular thing like pornography. Think about how many men in this place have known pornography is a sin, yet you keep doing it. Now imagine if someone was standing in front of you going, I'm your judge and I'm going to condemn you to hell for doing that. How many times would you want to hear a message like that before you would say, kill that guy and get him out of my life? I mean, let's just be honest. That makes people angry because Jesus wasn't just saying, God's going to judge you one day. He's saying, I'm your judge. I'm the judge. I'm here now. I'm making judgments over you. And that began to make the Pharisees super upset. So we may not relate to all of their sins. Like you may not today be as much of a hypocrite as them, but in other ways you are a hypocrite. You know, in other ways I've been a hypocrite. And then when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus and the anger and the the absolute hatred towards Jesus, many of us would say, oh, you know, I wouldn't do that. I I would just say, I'm sorry. I would go, okay, you're right. Don't judge me, Jesus. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But think about how many times you've asked Jesus to get out of your life. Think about how many times you've put a nail into Jesus' hands so that you could keep him just right where you wanted him and put his nails in his feet just so he could be crucified so you could go to that party so that he wouldn't follow you. Are you tracking with me? You said, stay here, Jesus. You don't follow me in life. That's what crucifixion really means is we don't want the Savior everywhere we go. We don't want the Savior at that booty call that we're making or that relationship we're in or or that, that tax form we're lying on. And so we've all been guilty of crucifying Jesus. We've all been guilty of rejecting Jesus. And then last but not least, we've all been sinning. We can all relate to Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve's sin is what brought all of the destruction of sin upon this earth. And all of us have disobeyed God at one time or another. But how many are thankful that Jesus loves us even when we don't love him? How many are thankful that Jesus is a good savior even when we're bad sinners? So this is the part of the story we're in. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, uh, verses 23 and onward. So I just say that so you don't think to yourself, I am so much better than these folks who end up getting Jesus crucified. No, you should not be reading the story and saying to yourself, man, I would have done different. You should be reading the story going, you know what? I bet you I would be trying to catch Jesus in a lie. I bet you I would be going against what he was saying. I bet I would try to find someone to turn on him so that I could get out of the mess that I'm in, so that I could feel better about myself. That's how humanity should relate to these people. Now, we've been hearing mostly about the Pharisees, and now we're going to hear about the Sadducees. They were similar to like the Republicans and the Democrats. There were two main parties in Israel at that time. One was called the Pharisees, and they were strictly by the law. They believed Moses' teachings, and as a matter of fact, they were once the good guys. During the time of the Maccabean Revolt, that's between Mal. Malachi and Matthew, we call that the intertestamental time. Uh, The Jewish people actually raised up and had a revolt against their oppressors, the Greeks. And during that time, the Pharisees became like the, the great warriors and heroes. They upheld the standards. They were like the modern day Davids of their time. But over the the next couple hundred years, by the time Jesus gets on the scene, they're now politically uh, corrupt. They are not keeping the law as they should. And so they They've been demising. And then the Sadducees were a group of aristocrats, pretty much just rich folks that used religion to get what they wanted. And they didn't believe much about the Bible, but they were very liberal. So everybody loved them if you were liberal. If you wanted to kind of get away with stuff, do your own thing, didn't really want to believe in a judgment, these were the kind of people you hung out with. As a matter of fact, they didn't even believe that there was really life after death. They just thought that God put us on the planet to make money, get rich, do all the good that
that we could, and then uh, after life, it's just over. And so they're going to come now, the Sadducees, to try to trick Jesus. Look at verse 23. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, so there's no life after death, came to him with the question, and they said, teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now, let's just pause right here. This is where we need to understand polygamy in the Bible. See, a lot of times when we talk about homosexuality being a sin, people go, yeah, but there was also polygamy in the Bible. So if you guys are going to be consistent and you're going to call homosexuality a sin because God made one man and one woman, then you have to say David wasn't sin because he had one, he was one man with multiple women. You got to say Abraham wasn't sin. So either there's a definition of marriage that can include homosexuality and polygamy, or you guys are hypocrites. Does everybody understand their argument. They bring that up to us. So you need to be prepared for this. This is what we understand about this text. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Let's learn why God allowed polygamy. Now, if you notice, it's already really been given to us as an answer, but I want you to see it in the actual context. Somebody say context. Context is king. So when someone quotes a scripture, whether it's someone in the Bible or in your life, go to that scripture and research it. So if you and I are hearing Jesus quote a scripture, what should we do? Go back and research it. If I'm quoting a scripture to you, what should you do? Go back and research it. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. The Deuteronomy code is the law. You'll see all of the uh, 613 laws in here. And so we're going to learn about why God allowed someone to have more than one wife. Let's look at it. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel. How many get why this is allowed? Is it because, no, nobody raised their hand. Okay, let me back up and ask the question again. Start here. How many are listening to me read the passage? Okay, how many understood it? Just be honest. You understood it. Okay, was polygamy allowed because a man needed another woman? He wasn't made to be a one man, a one woman man. He had to be like an Art Kelly, have as many women as he could get at all ages. Is that, is that why it was allowed? No, it's a very specific reason why it's allowed. And trust me, you can read through all the rest of the 613 laws. It's not brought up again. The only time God said, I will allow a man to have another wife is if his brother dies without having a male son to pass on his name. This was a part of their tribalism. This was how people at that time maintained their inheritances. How would, in this culture, the woman and whatever non-male children she had carry on the farm and all of the other property and have an inheritance to continue on that name? If there wasn't a male child, it would not have worked in that culture. You have to understand there are three types of way to deal with culture, and God does all three in the Old Testament. Sometimes God just rebukes the current culture and goes, have nothing to do with this. Don't give your children to the gods of Molech and set them on fire as sacrifice says, don't do human sacrifices. And how many are happy we don't live like they did in Machu Picchu and the Aztecs and all of that, right? And then you also said, don't worship other gods. And how many are glad we don't do that like the Romans and the Greeks, whatever. So there's a rebuke to culture. But then there's also another way that you can deal with culture, and that's a redeeming of culture. That culture is doing some things that are bad, but God is going to come into it and start redeeming it and start bringing it up to a higher standard. And then other things, uh, the third one would be like ignoring and just resisting. So one is going to be like rebuking, don't do it, stop. Everybody's sinful for doing this. The other one is we're going to redeem it. We're going to see something here. We're going to make it better. And then the other one is we're not going to deal, uh, we're not going to do it. We're going to resist it, but we're not necessarily going to get into other people's business. So take, for example, like sacrificing your, your, your children to idols. That was a rebuke. Everybody's going to hell if they do that. Uh, slavery, having people that would be considered a slave or uh, having a, a male be the head of the house. These were things that biblical culture was going to redeem, bring up to a higher level, give slaves the best rights that they had in any other nation, have their uh, freedom be able to 
be purchased, etc. And then there would be things like they would resist, like diet. They wouldn't eat pork, though if you ate pork, that was okay. But if you were going to be in Israel, you had to resist the temptation to eat lechon. How many understand the three R's of how you can deal with culture? And, and God is dealing with it here. Now, Jesus, when he brings back this story to us, he's doing it to answer what a Sadducee is asking. Because they're going to now say, we don't even believe in the resurrection. But let's just say we did. And now what they're going to do is play on the law of non-contradiction. They're going to say if something is true, it can't contradict itself. So if what you're saying is true, that there is a resurrection, then that means it can't be contradicting. It can't self-contradict. And now they're going to try to find a way to contradict based on this law that allowed a man to have his, uh, uh, his sister-in-law as a wife until she had a male child. Is everybody tracking with me? But I just want to show you one little part here because it's pretty cool. Go back to the Deuteronomy 25 because if the man goes, I'm not going to sleep with my sister-in-law to give her this child. Look at what happens. Verse 7 of, of, of chapter 25. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, this is what this man has done. Uh, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. So if, if she was not able to have this done so she could have this male child to continue in the form of tribalism and raise up a generation that could continue to farm and to take care of their things, she had permission in front of all the elders to take off the man's shoe, and I thought I was going to say slap him with it, but take off the shoe, make him shoeless, and then spit in his face and say, this is a disgrace. So it was really serious to do this. Now, if you look at every single polygamous hero we have in the Bible, you'll notice they never did this. And what does that mean? They sinned. David sinned by taking multiple wives. He ended up getting cursed for that. Solomon sinned for taking multiple wives. And we question whether or not he's in heaven right now. Are you listening? Uh, Abraham took a multiple wife based on his wife's idea, and he suffered greatly and created a nation that has been against Israel ever since that time. So there is not one example of going outside of the, uh, the, the, the Deuteronomy code for polygamy to preserve a family that's ever blessed in the Bible. That's why in Jesus, in Matthew, when he's asked about divorce, he goes back to the beginning and he says, this is what marriage was for and that's the way it's going to remain. And now he fulfilled this part of the law. So this is not even applicable to us anymore like some of the other things are not applicable, but but guess what is still applicable? The sexual code of how we have relationships. The reason why homosexuality is still applicable to us is because Jesus said, one man, one woman. You can't have one man and one woman in a homosexual relationship. Are you listening? Come on, can I hear an amen? And then the, when he said one man and one woman, he then did away with the, the clause here for a man to help out his family. They're no longer in tribal systems. They're no longer having to preserve a nation called Israel. Israel is going to now become a part of the church, and the church is going to become a part of the kingdom of God. Is everybody getting that? So just to tie this all together, there's so much controversy in here. There's a controversy of the actual text. There's a controversy of the 21st century. And there's a whole lot of questions you may have out of this. But it's very simple. Marriage, one man, one woman. Was there a time there was a polygamous relationship allowed? Yes, for tribal reasons to redeem the culture, to help that brothers who died would not lose their property, their widows could continue on. And the widow could remarry herself if she wanted to, which there's a lot of little things in here I don't have time to go through, but maybe I'll try to go through them quickly. The widow didn't have to marry the brother. She could marry another Israelite man and carry on the name that way. It's just saying if she can't find a man, and then maybe she's getting up in age, and maybe she doesn't even want to really be married, but she wants to keep the tribal community going. That's how it would have been done. Okay. 
Back to the Sadducees. They know about this. Now they're going to try to find a contradiction. They said, Jesus, you remember when Moses told a brother to marry his sister-in-law if the brother died? Okay, verse 25. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Now the Bible continues on. Verse 26, the same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Do you see them trying to be like a smarty pants here? How many of you have read this before and didn't understand anything what was going on? Let's be honest. Come on. This is why we're going verse by verse. This may not be the funnest message you want to hear today. Maybe you would like to hear again about Jonah and the whale or something like that. Simple. Maybe you can just understand that. But uh, you do have to put on your thinker in church. Amen. Sometimes I tell people, you might just have to give the same amount of effort that you give to everything else that's important in your life. Like when you decided to become a nurse, you didn't just show up after reading a summary of being a nurse for five minutes, did you? Or those of you who drive trucks, you didn't just say, well, I drive a car, so put me in an 18-wheeler, boss, you know? Or those of you who like to cook and make food, you didn't say, well, I can make eggs, so let's start a restaurant. You might have to put a little time into the Bible. And I may not always be up here as the most entertaining preacher, but hopefully you're getting some information today. That's why I had to go through the whole thing, because they're trying to contradict Jesus. Jesus. You say there's a resurrection. We don't believe in that. We just think life is whatever it is, and when it's over, it's over. We do believe there's a God. This didn't come out of nowhere. We believe there's a God, but there's no sense of justice at the end, no sense of ju judgment. There's, there's no resurrection. And so, Jesus, you say there is. You agree with the Pharisees, our political enemies. You're on that side of it. So we've got a question that we stump them with, and they don't know how to answer this one. So we're going to ask you now, Jesus, what happens if this, if this woman is married to seven brothers and now at the resurrection, they're all standing by her going, hey, honey, come home, come home, and they're not going to fight. You know, how is this going to work? Look at what Jesus replied. You are in error. Come on, somebody. How many know that's a nice way of saying you're dumb? That's a dumb question, boys. Why are you asking that? You are in error. Somebody should just hashtag that when somebody's put up a silly post or you see something you don't like. Just put up hashtag, you are in error. And don't say anything else. Just leave them like that. So he says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And let us be humble. Let us make sure we don't err in the same way. We must know the scriptures and we must know the power of God. See, in this church, we don't just emphasize our worship and prayer and power encounters with God. Though we see demons cast out, we see signs and wonders, we believe in spiritual gifts. We don't just accent that here. We also accent knowing the scriptures. And at the same time, we're not just here in a classroom setting, not experiencing God, getting a bunch of head knowledge. No, we're getting heart transformation by the revelation. Amen? So you got to know both. You have to know the scriptures and the power of God. They go hand hand in hand. So he says, you err, you don't know scriptures, you don't know the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. It's not happening. He's basically saying to them, where'd you get the idea that y'all going to be married at the resurrection? There's no teaching of that. And that's where you got to talk to your, your Mormon friend and go, you are in error, sir. Not only are you not going to have a bunch of wives in heaven, you're not going to have your own planet and you're not going to be a god. Now, that's the part of the onion that they don't tell you after they rode your bike to their house. Uh, they rode their bike to your house. They'll tell you just the nice stuff. We believe in the gospel. We believe in Jesus. Yeah, you also believe you're going to be gods with a bunch of wives populating the planet, and you're going to be your own father god to a planet like father god is a father to this planet. That's the end of the story for them. And that is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. You don't get married in heaven. And so they'll try to get around this. The Mormons will go, well, yeah, we don't get married in heaven. That's why we get married in the temple. So when we go to heaven, we're already married because that, now that's a spiritual marriage. No, read the rest of it. Nor will you be given in marriage. You're not going to have a married partner in heaven. How much more clear could Jesus have said it? You're not given in marriage. You're not going to marry. Now Jesus goes on. They will be like the angels in heaven. 
See, when you see angels throughout the Bible, you don't say like, man, that one's hot or that one's really sexy or look at the muscles. That's a Brad Pitt looking angels. They are not sexual beings. They may be known by gender, just like the father is known by gender, but, but he's not the father by, by having male gen, genitals, if I can say that word. I'm trying to think of another word. Like male sexuality. The father doesn't have male sexuality. The spirit doesn't have male sexuality. But Jesus does. Why? Because Jesus took on flesh and has stayed in that body. But the angels were never created with a physical body or sexuality, though they are known by genders. And so you will be the same way in heaven. You'll be known by your gender, male and female. And the Bible says both of these express the image of God. So there's something unique about a female and something unique about a male that is not tied just to your sexuality or your your physical body. So in heaven, you'll be known as a woman. If you are a woman, you'll be known as a man. But you will not have sexual body parts to get it on and be up in heaven making little baby angels, whatever you think you're going to do up there, whatever they were trying to say here. You're just going to be like the angels who don't have sex. Can we all talk like that in church today? Okay, so that's all he's saying there. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? He brings them back to the scriptures. He says, God speaking goes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, what he does is he brings them back to Exodus 3, 6, and he says, you don't understand the scriptures. Let me bring you back to when Moses met with God face to face in the burning bush there. He told him, I'm the God of Abraham. Like now, I'm still the God of Abraham in the present. So what does that mean? Abraham's still alive. Does everybody get that? He said, oh, come on, somebody. You got to help the preacher. Just appreciate this today. I'm working hard up here. Come on. He said, I am. Not I was the God of Abraham. I am the God of Abraham. So what does that mean if he's still the God of Abraham? Abraham is what? Alive. Guess what? Isaac, I'm the God of him too. Guess what that means? Isaac is alive. I'm the God of Jacob. What does that mean? Jacob is alive. So he's telling them, guys, they're still alive. And he probably could have gone through some other other names and say, I'm the judge of Pharaoh. He's alive too, but he's in a different spot. But he just takes them to this simple understanding. God, when he talks about people, he talks about them as if they're still existing. Abraham's still existing. He's just not in a physical body on earth. He is like an angel. And remember, because I just got to say this again, we love Abuela, we love our grandmas, but why do they have to have naked baby angels in the bathroom? Why do they got to put pictures of these little babies around their house? That is not even what an angel looks like. When Gabriel comes down, Gabriel is not coming down naked with a harp and little wings. That's not how, that's not how, and he's spitting out water, because sometimes you see it in the fountains, like, you know, little, little baby angels. That's not what they're like. The angels look just like us, but without the sexuality. Does everybody get that? When you see Gabriel, you know he's a man, but he doesn't have the body parts of a man, but you know he's a masculine person. And there's one portion of the scripture that talks about some feminine angels. That's another discussion, but I do believe there are some feminine angels. So we'll be like them, once again, not turning into angels. We don't turn into angels. We're just like them in that sense, but we'll still be alive. He says, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you know the power of God? The power of God is able to keep your soul alive without a body. Your body is your earth suit. If you go to space in a space suit and take it off to come back to earth, does that mean you die? No, you just took off your space suit. When your soul takes off its earth suit, do you die? No, you're more than your brain, friends. You're a mind. The mind and the brain are separate, though they work together. The mind is in the soul. You are more than just your physical nerves. You have feelings and emotions. Feelings and emotions are in the soul. And you have a will. You're not just a biological machine operating on chemicals and it and not a person. No, you have a will, and will is in the soul. So what does your body have? Your body has nerves. Your body has uh, DNA and all these living things that give you a place to function on the earth, but your soul has your mind, will, and emotion. So when your body dies, your soul lives on. Now, did God create us to be bodiless? No, he created us to be a soul in a body dwelling on earth forever, hence the need of the resurrection. 
Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Isn't that so important to the story? Jesus rose from the dead to hit reset and to be the new person in humanity. He set the example for us. This is what the new human race is going to look like. They're going to act like me, be like me, and have have a body that's indestructible for all eternity. That's why you have to be born again now in your spirit so that at the resurrection you get an upgrade into the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. If Jesus, now some people say that's gross to think that Jesus still has his sexuality, his male body in heaven and will have it forever. Why why does a spirit need that if he's God? Why does he need that? He did that for us. If Jesus ever stops having a body, he can never be the Lord of those who need resurrected bodies. So think about it like this. As long as God is generating his power through a human body, you have hope of resurrection and living forever. If he ever says, I don't want that body anymore, all of our bodies will disintegrate. So the very fact that he maintains a body for eternity is that we have eternal life in him. We had lost it when we, di- uh, when we ate from the tree and died according to the serpent's lies, but now according to Jesus' promises, we live forever in Christ. Amen? Verse 33, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. Isn't Jesus pretty smart? I love it when we can teach the scriptures and make Jesus look smart. Jesus is not dumb. Jesus is not also just all emotional. Just, I love everybody. Don't worry about the resurrection. Just love me and I'll love you. We'll figure it out later. No, Jesus is is really smart. He's really into the subject and he teaches us how to be the same way. We should be smart. We should go back to the scriptures. We should understand those kinds of things so that we can be uh, uh, leaders in our generation and astonish people who may ask those kind of silly questions. And it's not like silly, like they're trying to be, um, you know, dumb on purpose. I think some people are that way. But, uh, you know, some people are just asking us questions, like uh, reincarnation. That would be one that would come up today. Do we believe in reincarnation? Not in the sense they do. In the sense that they believe in, like the Hindus and others like that, believe that your soul is going to keep taking on bodies until your soul becomes perfect. And that through the karmic cycle of, of good and evil depends on how you're born into the next body. And that's part of what they believe. And so when they talk about karma, sick children are born sick because they were bad people in the last life. So think about that. It's not as cute and cuddly as uh, Angelina Jolie makes it out to be. Uh, That's why we had to go to India and help them take care of their poor because according to their religion, the poor deserved it. The cripple deserved it. The leper deserved it. That's your karma coming back on you. Who am I to get in the way of God's judgment? I'm rich and healthy. I don't need you. That's why Mother Teresa went there to say, uh, that's not how we look at life. Uh, We're all sinners in some way, and sometimes our bodies don't work right. These are still precious people. We need to care for them and love them. So Christians showed Hindus how not to live by the karmic cycle, but live by the power of Jesus Christ, and we still do that today. Uh, Another way that people might look at it is similar to the evolutionary theory. When I die, it's just over. I'm just dust. And then what do I always say back to them? Well, if you're just dust, can I get your keys now to your car? And you mind if I get your wallet? Because you're just dust anyway. I mean, let's just not waste any time, you know? But of course, they don't live like dust, do they? They don't live like dust. They're actually just saying that because they kind of just want to get out of the idea of I'm going to face a God in judgment one day. So Jesus knew how to astonish the people. Study your scriptures. Astonish the people in your life. Amen? All right, let's keep going. Switching gears. As Matthew intended us to learn many things in his letter, we're going to go right to a different subject right now, so let's not be intimidated by it. Let's go now to verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. How many know now that the Pharisees are like, oh, man, I'm going to give it a try. You guys just failed. You guys just got punked. You guys got put in your plays. Everybody laughed at you. Oh, but look, we're going to get an expert because you, you guys came half-hearted. You guys came half-stepping, rather, with Jesus. We're going to get an expert of the law and see if we can bring them down. Look at what it says, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Wow, that sounds like it's a tough question, right? Like, Jesus, there's 613 laws. Man, which one is the greatest, the best? Jesus replied, didn't even just, didn't even stop. He just kept going, man. He had the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Can I hear an amen to that? I mean, what commandment could be greater than that? He says, this is the first and greatest commandment. 
And the second, they didn't ask for the second, did they? He's like, I'm going to tell you the second. You hang around a little while. I'm going to tell you the third. I'm going to tell you the fourth. I'm going to tell you all of these commands. I love my Jesus. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. They wanted to try to get Jesus to pit the law against itself to see which one he would value the most. But what Jesus did was a simple deduction. He said, if the first one talks about us having the God of the universe as our God and not having any idols before him and loving him with everything, then obviously from that foundation, from that premise, from that law, everything else flows. That's easy. Now, once again, I try to preface this by saying we shouldn't look down on them because that could have been a good question that we might have asked. We only know now because we've seen the story and how it played out. But you might have asked Jesus that same question. Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Thou shalt not murder. That one's probably pretty important. Or what about thou shalt not lie? Or what about honor your father and your mother? What about all these commands that I know are good, Jesus? Which one's the best? Come on. I mean, how do you pick one? But what Jesus did is what we call the axiomatic approach. When you deal with axioms, axioms are the first foundation, and they can't have something beneath that because then that would be the foundation. So as you study logic and as you study theology, every source needs to have its foundation, and his is obviously the clear foundation. There is a God, and we must love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, if you notice here, heart, soul, and mind are all divided up into different words that we would call heart, soul, and mind. But are they talking about different things? No. And in another version, he says the word strength because that's also there. Now, when we talk about a heart, what is he emphasizing? Those things that I was mentioning before, the three parts of your soul, or just the three uh, manifestations of how you express your soul. Your heart would have to do with your emotions, how you live and how you feel and go through life, you are to give that all to God. Your soul, which can encompass all of it, obviously, but here in this sense, your soul is your will, your self-identifying will, like what makes you, you. reason why we are not like animals is because we have human soul with the ability of self-determination. Self-determination must be grounded in your will. For example, what clothes you put on today. You determine that in your soul via your will. And then lastly, your mind has to do with your, your thoughts. So I say mind, will, and emotions, heart, soul, and mind. Those are all different ways of expressing the inner life of a person. Jesus simply said, you love God with that. Love God with everything. The reason why I clarify that is it's not, it's not because like your heart is here and your soul's over here and your mind's over here and now there's three parts of you. It's all describing one part. That's your inner part. And how does that receive life? By the Spirit of God in a physical body. So who you are is a spiritual soul living in a body. That's why the Bible says in Thessalonians, love God and serve him and be sanctified in your body, soul, and spirit. Now, your soul and spirit, the Bible says the only thing that can distinguish between those is the word of God. The word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, discerning between soul and spirit. And the spiritual aspect of your soul is that which God rebirths and connects you to himself in. And that process is what renews the mind, transforms the soul, and gives you a new person on the inside, a new heart. You're a new creation. And then you live in this body until it passes, and then you get your new body. Come on, somebody say amen. 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 Let's go to verse 41. You guys still appreciating me? I'm doing my best. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Switching gears again. The Pharisees are not done. They come right back with another question. But hold on. Guess what happens? Before they can come and try to stump Jesus, we now see Jesus ask them a question. And this teaches us that in arguments or discussions, and remember, not all arguments are bad. As long as you're not throwing fists and cussing each other out, it's okay to disagree, right? Disagree with each other. Learn to disagree agreeably. We can learn through our disagreements. So Jesus was about arguments. Let's not say that as Christians, we should never argue. Don't say we should never argue. Jesus argued, okay? The Bible says they debated. They had, they had tough discussions, but they never, uh, the Christians never turned that into physical abuse or 
towards the hatred towards the people. Jesus loves them. So the Pharisees were gathered together, and Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now watch, he's tricking them, right? Because he knows the answer. Let's see how he sets them up. Somebody say, set up. You all know you do this in your arguments too. Who pays the bills around here? You know, you'll say something like that. Whose car is this? You know, we set people up because then once they say what we want them to say, we go in even harder. Jesus knows that they have to say the Messiah is the son of David. It's obvious. Now let's just pause here for a second. The Messiah was a promised figure in the Old Testament, starting from Genesis chapter 3, that, that God said to the woman, your seed will crush the serpent's head, but he will strike the heel. That is the sign of the crucifixion. Jesus is going to feel pain as he's crushing the serpent. Everybody get that? So starting from Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the time of Jesus, prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. Let me blow your mind right here. There's more prophecies about Jesus Jesus' second coming in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament about him coming a second time. So the Old Testament not only prophesies his first coming, but it also prophesies his second coming. But here was the problem with the modern-day Jew of Jesus' time. They married the two comings together. So every time they saw Jesus suffering servant-type prophecies, Isaiah 53, they matched that with the other prophecies, like in Psalm 2, where the Messiah crushes the enemies of God. So in their mind, there's only one coming. He suffers a little bit, but then he rises up in battle, conquers all the enemy. Jesus has been trying to teach them this whole time that there's going to be two separate comings. One as a suffering servant where he dies on the cross, the Messiah raises, goes to heaven, and then sends out the gospel for a time called the last days. And then he will return, establish the kingdom, judge the world. And how many are happy for this 2,000-year period of the church age? How many are happy? Because our people wouldn't have been in the kingdom without it. Us Romans, the Italians, the Polish, the Europeans, we would have been destroyed. How many know Africa would have been destroyed? How many know Latin America would have been destroyed? There only would have been like 2 million Jews living in Israel for all of eternity. I'm glad the kingdom got to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And isn't that how the book of Matthew ends? Now go and make disciples of all the nations. So between the first coming and the second coming is the church age, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. So he goes, whose son is the Messiah? Now, the reason why they wouldn't say the son of God, they would say specifically David, is because they knew the Messiah had to come from David's tribe, David's lineage. They go from David. He's the son of David. And I have the scriptures there that they knew. Verse 43, he said to them, watch this. I love my Jesus. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Come on, somebody. Do I call my children Lord? I don't call my children Lord. They call me boss or father. I have authority. But now it says, if David is really the father figure of the Messiah, why does David worship and call him Lord? The Lord, now he quotes Psalm 10. This is what David says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I, make, uh, until I put your enemies under your feet. Now watch what Jesus does here. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word and replied. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, now let's just pause right here. You don't have to raise your hands, but be honest in your heart. How many even know what Jesus is trying to make, uh, the point Jesus is trying to make here? Most of us don't get it because we read through that scripture. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And we're like, what is going on? Who's the first Lord? Who's the second Lord? Why are enemies becoming a footstool? And why does that even matter to David being the father figure of the Messiah? Let's take it slowly here. The Messiah was going to come through David's lineage. David was known to be the greatest king. Jesus is going to come through the seed of David. Jesus is going to have a body that he gets via the Holy Spirit, but birth through a woman called Mary who comes from the tribe of Judah, the same tribe of David, the line of the kings. Are you listening? Come on, somebody say, I'm listening. 
So Mary is not the physical mother of Jesus because he had a divine uh, uh, conception, the virgin birth. We believe that. He didn't come from Joseph's seed. And the body he was given was a sinless body via the Holy Spirit. But he comes through the tribe, the lineage of Mary. That's why when you look at the, the genealogies, it's important to notice that Joseph is also from the tribe of David as well as Mary. So he'll be raised as as a son of David, okay? That's the first thing we have to realize. But what did they think? It stopped there. They thought that the Messiah was just going to be a prophetic human being, a human being like David, but does a lot of great things. There's the Messiah. That's what they thought. But all throughout the scriptures, we begin to see these hints of the divinity of the Messiah. So you see there's two lords there. The Lord said to my Lord. Two people are talking. How many are talking? Two. Let's go to Genesis chapter 19. I'll show you two lords talking there as well. And then I'll show you that there's only really one Lord, but they're not the same person. Are you ready to learn about the Trinity? You can each call the people of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord. And that, in that sense, there are three persons, but there are not three gods. I'll show you how they share their divine nature, but yet they're not the same person. But let's just show an example in the Old Testament right at the beginning of the book where you see two people called Lord hanging out and talking to each other. You all remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay. Now Jesus came down to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the one that met with Abraham, and he came with two angels. He sent off the two angels to go to Lot's house, and he hung out with Abraham as Abraham was interceding. Then he, after talking with Abraham, went down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and with the angels brought the judgment. Look at how this goes in verse 24. Look at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 19. Then the Lord rained down sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out of the heavens. Ooh, snap. Come on, highlight that. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur. So the Lord, he's still there on earth. He's going to rain down that burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. But where is that going to come from? The Lord where? Out of the heavens. Now, are there two gods? Because it says there's a Lord there in heaven, and then there's a Lord there on earth. Are there two gods? No, David says, my Lord said to my other Lord, you know, two, two gods. No, no, no. Go to the end of the book of Matthew. Let's go to the end of the story. Help under, I'm going to help you understand the Trinity. If this is your first time here, don't be confused by it. The Trinity is one God, three persons. And if they're one God, three persons, then they can share the same divine title as Lord and God. So there are three persons. Now, sometimes people think, oh, the Trinity means there's three persons, but they're really one. That's not what we're saying. Or that there's really three gods and they're one God. That's not what we're saying. Understand this. One God, three persons. Do not think I am saying three persons are one person or three gods are one God. Do you understand the difference there? I am not saying that. Baptize them in the name. The name of God is Jehovah, also known as Lord. The name, the singular name of what? The Father. So that means he has the name of Lord. And of the Son, he has the name of Lord. And of the Holy Spirit, he has the name of Lord. It doesn't say baptize in the names, plural. It says baptize in the name, singular. And how does that name apply? It applies like our last name. How many Wyrostics are there? Well, there are multiple Wyrostic people in my family, but we are one Wyrostic family. Now, that example can only go so far because I'm not divine sharing my personhood with another, uh, with another person, right? Like, like God can do things in his nature that I can't, but that's an easy way to explain it. An easy way is there's the name of God for the people in the nature of God. And there's three people in the nature of God. When we say people, we don't necessarily mean human people. We mean intelligent beings that have their own separate mind, will, and emotions. That is the person of the Father, the person of the Son, and the person of the Holy Spirit. Where else do we see that in the book of Matthew? Jesus is getting baptized. He's there in the water. Father is speaking from heaven, uh, and there comes the dove. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's another group that's very similar to us. They love Jesus. They get all excited in church. They're called Oneness Pentecostals, but they're wrong. This is why they're oneness, because they think that's all Jesus. 
They think Jesus is in the water, uh, astro projecting his voice like a puppeteer up here in heaven and then coming down in another form called the dove. Jesus is not three manifestations of the same, uh, uh, three manifestations of these persons. Jesus is a unique person. The Father is a unique person, and the Holy Spirit is a unique person, and they have been existing as separate, unique persons from eternity. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Spirit was over the earth. That's not the same as the Father or the Son. And then it says, the Son came down and made man in his, in his image. God said, let us make mankind in our image. And who was there making us in his image. Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were created through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then go to John 1.18. Finish it off. It says, we have not seen God, but God the Son, who is at the right hand of the Father. He has made him known. Let me show it to you. John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen what? God. But hold on, I thought we saw Jesus. I thought the Lord was there meeting with Abraham. I thought we've seen him in the Garden of Eden, but keep going. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself what? God. And in his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So that's where you got to read the Bible to read the Bible. Who is the person that we've never seen? The Father. And he's God. But who is the person we have seen? The Son. And he's God. Are there three gods? No, three persons sharing the name of God, sharing the nature of God. Let's go back to our notes in closing, please. Jesus asked them this simple question. You guys think you're smart? Well, then tell me, if David is the father figure of the Messiah, why does he call him Lord like he calls the father Lord? Why? Because the Messiah is God. He's God just like the Father is God. Jesus had just told us the easiest way to understand who the Messiah was. The Messiah is divine. The Messiah is not just a person like Gandhi or Braveheart or some other hero or a martyr. Jesus is the pre-existing son who is equal to the Father and has created us with the Holy Spirit and has come down in a body humbling himself that he might die for his own creation. Now somebody might say, did God die? No. When your body dies, do you stop existing? No. When Jesus' body died, did God go out of business? No. No more than when your body dies, your soul doesn't go out of business. What we say on the cross is Jesus gave his body for us. Now, some people might say that's cheating if he was God. No, the Bible says in Philippians 2, he humbled himself. He dialed his divinity down all the way to match humanity. So that's why he gets tired. Because some people will be like, well, if Jesus is God, then why does he get tired? Because he wanted to get tired. He wanted to relate to us, the Bible says. Go to Philippians chapter 2 and closing as the band comes, please. That's why Jesus, as Lord, became man. That's why he's called the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is like us as man, but his origin is of divinity. Does everybody get that? Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So I'm supposed to have this mindset that Jesus had. What mindset did Jesus have? Who, being in very nature God... What nature was he in? What nature is he in? God, who being in very nature, what? What is his nature? God, thank you. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't come down here like Superman zapping all of us. Rather, what did he do? He made himself nothing. Do you know what it's like for God to become a man? It's like God becoming nothing. That's the only comparison the author could say. For, for us, it would be even like it's even greater than us becoming an ant to save ants. The, the, the uh, downward trajectory, the amount of degrees we would have to lose to go from human to ant is incomparable compared to what God went from God to man. Does everybody get it? You to ant times it by a billion, trillion, quadrillion. That's what God did by becoming man. He made himself nothing, in other words. By taking the very nature of a... Okay, now we learn two natures. 
hypostatic union. Two natures came together. Hypostasis meaning nature, union, static. They stuck together. The very one who was God, the Son, took on to himself the nature of a servant. So everybody get this. Jesus is not a man becoming God. He is a God becoming man. Understand the difference. The Hindus want to teach you as a man to become God. That's not what he did. He did not find his inner God self. He didn't do that. He was God. He is God. But what did he do? He added to himself a human nature. This is like when those guys go into a booth and add to themselves a cartoon nature when they make the cartoon shows. They're still human in nature, right? But then now they make Frozen. And now they're somewhere there on the screen doing X, Y, and Z. God is so great that he can maintain the nature of God and add to that the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Why? What's the big why behind this? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Keep going, please. Therefore, God, who? The Father, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He was never known by Jesus until he took on flesh. He was only known as God, Yahweh. He was known by that. Now in the flesh, he is a person like us in humanity, but still retaining his divinity, and he has the name Jesus, or Yahshua. Yahweh saves. So the Father gave him that name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is what? That Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is all-powerful, that Jesus Christ is every bit of God as the Father to the glory of God the Father. So whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David and means of coming in the flesh. According to him taking on a fleshly nature, yeah, he's the son of David. But according to his divine status, he's the son, the only begotten of the father, equal from all eternity with the Holy Spirit, divinely creating and ruling over us. And that's why Philippians 2 says, let that, be, let that attitude be in you. If God could become nothing to serve you, you can become nothing to serve your friends. You could become nothing to serve this community. Lay down your life for one another. Serve Jesus. Make his name great. Amen. Let's give it up for Jesus today. God bless you. Stand up. Band, altar workers, would you come, please? Thank you again for a great uh, appreciation service. Thank you. Let's close out by appreciating God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're not born again and you want to accept Christ, you want to be at the resurrection with him, you want to make him the Lord of your life, you can come up even right now as we start to dismiss. If you have a prayer need in your life, anything going on, feel free to come up and we'll dismiss with worship and prayer and feel free to hang out as long as you like. Today is an opportunity for you to get to know and love Jesus. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent him and that he came. Jesus, we're so thankful that you did all of these wonderful things for us to learn and to grow in your scriptures and your power. And Holy Spirit, we thank you today that you fill us and make us knowledgeable and change our lives from the inside out. Blessed triune God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Spirit, change us today. Make us like you. Let us believe in the resurrection. May we keep the greatest commandment to love you with everything and the second greatest one, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And help us today to know who you are and why you came and to tell the world all about you. It's in his name we pray today, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Give it up for Jesus one more time. God bless you.